Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, former college professor, current college administrator, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with 1 being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. This episode is rated a 5. It's the story of one South Carolina college student who was simply trying to be responsible and call a rideshare after a night out drinking with her friends. When a black Chevy Impala pulled up beside her, the student got in, thinking it was the Uber ride she ordered. But instead, it was a terrible, evil person waiting for her behind the wheel of that car. And that person would go on to brutally attack her, leaving her for dead on the side of the road. This episode is titled The Wrong Car, and it's bound to make you think twice before hopping into that next Uber or Lyft. So without further ado, let's get started. Samantha Josephson, whose close friends and family called Sammy, was a beautiful young woman, and when I say beautiful, I mean flawlessly gorgeous. She had the most beautiful, big brown eyes and long, straight, dark brunette hair. Samantha, who grew up in Robbinsville, New Jersey, was a 21-year-old political science major at the University of South Carolina, or U of SC for short, and she was set to graduate in May 2019. Then, after graduation, she was planning to attend law school at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. An article in USA Today described Samantha as an energetic young woman who loved her friends and family with all her heart. As you can see, Samantha was on top of her studies and did well in college. I mean, she was about to be a lawyer, after all. But she was also one of those students who could easily maintain a balance of school and a social life. According to an article in The Post and Courier, on Thursday, March 28th of 2019, Samantha had recently received some upsetting news about a family member's medical condition, and her boyfriend, Greg Corbishley, told her she needed to go out, have a night with her friends and roommates, and just take her mind off of it. Plus, she was about to graduate in less than two months and go to law school, like I said, so he told her she deserved a night out. Greg, who lived in Charleston, about two hours away from Columbia, where U of SC is located and where Samantha was, told her she should go out with her friends, try to enjoy herself, and he'd see her soon because she was planning to visit him later that weekend. 
So Samantha did just that. She went out with her friends to the Five Points District in Columbia, which is a popular area with several bars and restaurants where a lot of college students hang out because it's famous for its nightlife. At some point during the night, though, Samantha got separated from her group of friends. So she did what any responsible college student does when they have been drinking and need to get home safely. Or really what any responsible person does, not just college students. She ordered an Uber from her phone, which was around 2 a.m. on March 29th. So when she first went out that night, it was Thursday, March 28th. But now into the morning hours, it was technically the next day on Friday, March 29th. And I point that out because those dates are important for the timelines in this story. So that's particularly why I wanted to point that out. Anyway, Samantha ordered the Uber and video surveillance in front of the bird dog bar shows her waiting by a curb outside. The bird dog was the bar where she was last seen with her friends as well. Then at 2.09 a.m., a 2017 black Chevy Impala pulls up right beside Samantha, and Samantha can be seen on CCTV footage getting into the car and shutting the door. The car then backs out of the parking space and heads southbound down Harden Street. Unfortunately, the footage of her stepping into that car would be the last time anyone would see Samantha alive. You see, Samantha got into the car that night thinking it was her Uber ride pulling up beside her. Instead, what everyone would soon learn was that it was a 24-year-old man by the name of Nathaniel Rowland, and he wasn't an Uber driver at all. No, instead, he was a cold-blooded killer. Later that night, or technically in the morning, Samantha's friends and roommates became increasingly worried when they couldn't find her. Actually, according to the Post and Courier, her friends had tracked her phone that night when they couldn't find her through an app that they all used. And her friends and boyfriend actually watched where her phone went that night through the app. But when they realized that it was headed in a direction opposite of their apartment where Samantha and her roommates lived, they just assumed that she had taken an Uber somewhere else and perhaps accidentally left her phone in the car or something. At this point, though, they had no idea that foul play was involved. Later into the next day, on Friday, March 29th, her friends were in full-on panic mode, and her boyfriend, Greg, even drove the two hours from Charleston to Columbia to try to find her, especially when they realized that Samantha never came home at all throughout the night. They noticed something was particularly off because, according to the Post and Courier, Samantha's shoes that she wore as a waitress at the Liberty Tap Room, a nearby brewery and grill, were still exactly where she left them by the door. This was definitely odd because she was a responsible person and she had a shift that day, but she never showed up to work it. After this, Samantha's friends and boyfriend began looking all over town for her, and they even passed out flyers with her photo on it, asking if people had seen her. They also went to the Bird Dog Bar, where Samantha was last seen, and convinced them to see the video surveillance from the night before. That's when they quickly realized that Samantha got into the Black Impala the night before, and that's when they desperately began looking for answers. So naturally, the first place they turned to was Samantha's computer, hoping it would tell them something, anything, as to where their dear friend might be. On her computer, they discovered an email that showed the actual Uber Samantha had ordered the night before, but they realized 
the Uber had actually been canceled. Apparently, the Uber driver later testified that he circled the area but never saw Samantha. She never showed up, so he canceled the ride, which is pretty common protocol when people don't show up for their rides that they ordered. CNN.com reported that after discovering all of this information, Samantha's friends and boyfriend went straight to the police and reported her missing around 1.30 p.m. on March 29th. But as all of this was going on and her friends were so frantically looking for her, two turkey hunters in Clarendon County stumbled upon a body around 3.45 or 4 p.m. that afternoon. WIS News 10 in Columbia reported that the body was located in a wooded area near Black Bottom Road in New Zion, South Carolina, which is about 60 to 70 miles from where Samantha was last seen getting into the black Chevy Impala in the Five Points District. Unfortunately, that body was soon identified as Samantha. After this, a manhunt ensued for the black Chevy Impala that Samantha was seen getting into. And it didn't take police long at all to find exactly what they were looking for. CNN.com reported that at about 3 a.m. on Saturday, March 30th, police spotted the Impala that matched the description of the car Samantha was seen stepping into. So, of course, police pulled the car over. But when the officer asked the driver, identified as Nathaniel Rowland, to get out of the vehicle, Rowland took off running on foot. But... Thankfully, the police were on top of their game and they quickly caught up to Roland and captured him. Roland was immediately thrown in jail and held without bond. Upon the initial search of the vehicle, police found a substance that appeared to be blood inside the car. Shortly after, a search warrant for Roland's car led police to discover more blood on the passenger side and the trunk of the Impala that matched Samantha's blood. They also found Samantha's cell phone in the passenger compartment, as well as a liquid container of bleach, germicidal wipes, and window cleaner. But one of the most heartbreaking parts of the story is that police also discovered that the child safety locks were activated in the car. So that led them to automatically believe if Samantha was in the car, which, I mean, they found her blood in there, so they know she was, she had no way to escape her kidnapper and killer. She was just stuck in the backseat of that car with no way out. My stomach is seriously in knots just thinking about the terror and the horror that she must have faced when she realized she couldn't get out of that vehicle. Immediately after their search, police announced that Samantha's death was now officially considered a homicide investigation, and they charged Roland with kidnapping and murder. According to CNN.com, he also faced two misdemeanor charges as well, consisting of failure to stop on police command and simple possession of marijuana. Though police didn't release specific details about her death, those details wouldn't actually be revealed until the murder trial, so I will come back to this. But an autopsy revealed her cause of death was multiple sharp force injuries, according to USA Today. And CNN.com reported that Samantha had numerous stab wounds on her head, neck, face, upper body, leg, and foot, according to a police warrant for Roland. Also, further into their investigation, police soon discovered that Roland lived in New Zion, which is located in Clarendon County, where Samantha's body was discovered by the turkey hunters. Apparently, though, because the location is a heavily wooded area, investigators said that only someone who knew the area well could have dumped her body in the spot where she was found. And, get this, 
WIS News 10 reported that it was only about two miles away from Roland's family home in New Zion. Now, I didn't point this out earlier when I was discussing how they spotted Roland's vehicle and pulled him over, but there was a passenger in his car as well. However, all news and police reports clearly state that the passenger was not a suspect in Samantha's murder, and she was being very cooperative with the police. But I do want to point out that the person with Roland the night he was caught was his former girlfriend, Maria Howard. I mention her because she is an extremely important witness in this case and for the prosecution. You see, Maria told police that Roland was supposed to pick her up from work the morning following Samantha's death, and when he did, she noticed blood in the car, according to the Post and Courier. At the trial, News 19 WLTX reported, Maria further testified that when she rode in Roland's car the next day, it smelled like chlorine bleach, and she noticed what appeared to be dried blood on the dashboard where the airbags were. She also noticed a sheet that Roland had thrown across the back seat, as if he tried to cover up the seat. However, Maria testified that she could see blood on parts of the seats that the sheet was not covering. At first, though, Maria didn't assume the worst. I mean, because who just goes out and kills someone and then leaves blood behind so anyone who rides in the car can clearly see it? So she just asked him if maybe he hit a dog or something. She was just like, did you hit a dog? But, Maria said, Roland simply told her to mind her own business. Um, okay, asshole. Also, Roland ended up picking up Maria's four-year-old daughter later that same day, and Maria noticed her daughter's shoe had blood on it after riding in Roland's car. Later, Maria also testified that she normally kept her work visor in Roland's car, but she couldn't find it. It was missing. So when she asked Roland about it and pressed him on what might have happened to it, he told her, quote, it's in the country with blood on it, end quote. During their investigation, police searched Maria's house because it sounds like that is where Roland was staying and, of course, because she was his girlfriend at the time. In a garbage bin behind Maria's house, police did find the sheet that covered the back seat, in addition to bloody cleaning products and a blade that was consistent with Samantha's wounds. I'm going to circle back around and tell you specific details about the trial, but before I do, I want to continue with our timeline of events preceding the trial, especially because it wouldn't get started until this year in 2021. So, in the immediate aftermath of Samantha's death, several positive things happened that I'd like to share with you. First, Samantha's parents, Seymour and Marcy Josephson, became huge advocates for rideshare safety. Seymour told USA Today that he wanted others to learn from what happened to his daughter and to be more vigilant when using ridesharing apps. He said, quote, I don't want anyone else to go through this again. What we learned is you guys have to travel together. If there's two of you, something is less likely to happen. Samantha was by herself. She had absolutely no chance. None. End quote. Samantha's mother told ABC's Good Morning America that they had heard from parents all over the country saying it could have easily been their son or daughter instead of Samantha. Marcy said, quote, I think it's just become such a natural or new phenomenon using Uber. We trust people and you can't. You have to change the way that laws are to make it safer because that's our nature. We automatically assume that we're safe, end quote. 
According to News 19 WLTX in Colombia, Samantha's parents went on to establish the What's My Name organization to help educate people on rideshare safety. And something I absolutely love is that in May 2019, the University of South Carolina awarded Samantha a posthumous degree at the commencement ceremony, which Samantha would have been attending as a graduate. At the graduation, U of SC President Dr. Harris Pastides took the opportunity to educate others of potential dangers in ride-sharing services. At the ceremony, he asked students to make a pledge that they would ask their Uber or Lyft drivers, what's my name, before getting into the vehicle. Also, South Carolina passed a law in 2019 called the Samantha L. Josephson Ridesharing Safety Act, which requires ride-sharing services to properly display their license plates in front of the vehicles. The law also requires rideshare companies to provide an illuminated sign with the company's name and logo on it so that riders can see it visibly displayed in the dark. And the University of South Carolina partnered with Uber for a nationwide safety awareness campaign, which would allow riders to receive push alerts reminding them to check the vehicle to make sure it's the right one. U of SC also started a designated pickup zone for college students in the Five Points District in Columbia. Also, after Samantha's death, both Uber and Lyft made significant changes, according to News 19. They both installed a feature that allows users to call 911 straight from the apps themselves. In addition, on July 29, 2020, the U.S. House of Representatives passed Sammy's Law, which requires rideshare apps to match drivers and passengers, as in a way to ensure that both the driver of the ridesharing service and the passenger are able to verify each other's identities. So, now, let's circle back around to the trial, which began July 20th, 2021. During the week-long trial, the prosecution called at least three dozen witnesses to the stand. Though all they had was circumstantial evidence, they painted a very clear picture and timeline for the jury. According to the prosecution, Roland drove around for about 10 minutes before spotting Samantha and stopping to pick her up. Once Samantha got inside, Roland then drove southbound down Hardin Street in Columbia. According to an article in the Post and Courier, prosecuting attorney Byron Gibson told the court that both Samantha's and Roland's phones tracked together. Samantha's phone, through the app that her friends were using to track her, showed her traveling through the Shandon neighborhood of Columbia to Rosewood. Her phone then appeared to power down when they reached the intersection of Montgomery Avenue and South Ott Road. But Roland's phone showed the exact same path. It is critical to point out here that I had no idea what any of this meant, so I definitely had to bring out the maps on my iPhone. And I soon realized that these directions and streets are important because it is the path that Roland took as he headed out of town. On the map, if you zoom in on the actual streets, you can see that this route was basically the way out of town, the direction that Roland was headed. Roland's phone then tracked him leaving town via US 378, which is where the route led him. And from there, he went on to the town of Sumter, South Carolina, and then on to his hometown of New Zion. He traveled a total of about 60 to 70 miles at least with Samantha in the car. News reports vary on how many miles it was exactly. So that's why I say 60 to 70. 
Then, at some point, he ended up stabbing Samantha to death before tossing her body in that remote rural area where she was found. According to an article in the Greenville News, a pathologist testified that Samantha had over 120 separate stab wounds, most of which were to her head, arms, chest, and back, but several even penetrated into her brain and neck and were fatal. However, this number, 120, was just an estimate because her injuries were so severe that they had trouble counting the exact number of stab wounds Samantha suffered. The pathologist also testified that Samantha was stabbed so many times that she had very little blood left in her body. She had so little blood that medical personnel conducting her autopsy struggled to get enough for routine testing. She had 20 milliliters, or about 1.3 tablespoons of blood in her body, but a typical body after death when they do an autopsy has at least 4 liters, or 1 gallon, of blood. I'll let that sink in for a moment. So, moving on with the timeline, after murdering Samantha, Roland, the scum of a person that he is, proceeded to go to at least two different ATMs and tried a total of nine different times to use Samantha's Wells Fargo debit card. But the sorry SOB was never able to withdraw any money because he clearly didn't have her PIN number. What a loser. Why would you even think that you could, what, somehow guess her PIN number? I wouldn't be surprised if the odds of that happening were comparable to winning the lottery, or even less likely. Anyway, at some point over the next day, Roland also took Samantha's cell phone to a business called Cellular City to try and sell it. Actually, the employee at the cell phone store was one of the witnesses who testified for the prosecution. He told the court that Roland came in to sell the phone, but Roland refused to only take $125 for it, so he left without selling it. The employee also testified that Roland indeed arrived in a black Chevy Impala and he did get a glimpse of a photo on the cell phone Roland had with them and it appeared to be a photo of Samantha. According to WCSC Live 5, the prosecution also revealed that when law enforcement first processed the crime scene, they collected several pieces of DNA evidence. This included cigarette butts on the ground and wounds and bite marks on Samantha's body. They also noted that Samantha's fingernails were ripped and torn and they swapped Samantha's mouth. And the DNA evidence is where the story gets a little tricky and I'm a little confused to say the least. So let me just tell you a little more about it. Apparently, witnesses for the prosecution side tested that DNA found under Roland's fingernails matched Samantha's genetic material. According to the Greenville News, however, in previous testimony, some scientists were not 100% sure Roland's DNA was on the knife and his genetic material was not in other places it might be expected to be. For instance, according to WCSC Live 5's reporting, Roland's DNA was not found on her body and when they swapped Samantha's mouth, Roland's DNA was not present. I'm not going to lie, this is super odd to me and I'm not sure exactly how to explain this away. But I do think there's got to be a very logical reason that is just not something maybe you or I would understand unless we were, you know, experts in forensics. But let me point another thing out to you. Because of the state of Samantha's fingernails and her defensive wounds, 
Investigators believe that Samantha may have tried to fight off her attacker. Her fingernails were ripped and torn, and she had several stab wounds that went clear through her hands. However, the defense claimed that none of Roland's DNA was found on Samantha or under her fingernails. Also, and this part is kind of what baffles me the most, if I'm being honest, but an investigator took pictures of Roland within 24 hours after his arrest, and he did not appear to have any type of cuts or marks that would be consistent with Samantha fighting back. So, the only thing I can think on this part is, and I am not criticizing Samantha at all or judging her in any way because, I mean, we've all been there, but it could be that Samantha was so intoxicated and simply couldn't fight back in the same way or with the same force as someone who had not been drinking. That's just my initial thoughts, though, because I seriously don't understand, especially considering the state of her fingernails and stab wounds through her hands, how he would not have any type of defense wounds or scratches on his body. It really just makes no sense to me. But again, I feel like this theory, which is completely my own theory, um, no news reports or police reports or court documents verify this, but I do think she may have just been too inebriated to really fight back. And if you are losing that much blood and you've been stabbed that many times, I feel like you would be so helpless. Like, I feel like there is no way you can really have enough energy or life left to fight with. I think that could also explain why Samantha's DNA was found under Roland's fingernails, but his DNA was not necessarily found under hers or on her. He also could have worn gloves and just got rid of those and police never found them. But again, my theories, not actual police theories. The defense, though, jumped all over this to try and create reasonable doubt. Roland, of course, denied everything from the beginning, and his defense basically just tried to claim that he was not the person driving the car, especially because all they had was circumstantial evidence. Nobody actually saw Roland in the car with Samantha, and nobody actually saw Roland murder her. And, well, you know, he didn't have any defense wounds. But, I mean, come on, man. Her blood and her cell phone and her footprint was in your car. All of the evidence they collected had Samantha's blood all over it. Oh, and that reminds me, according to the Greenville News, investigators also found Samantha's blood on one of Roland's socks and his bandana. And WIS News 10 reported that a blood serum analysis scientist testified that a beanie found in Roland's car tested positive for both Roland's and Samantha's DNA. At the close of the trial, the prosecution and defense both rested on the sixth day of the trial. Before resting, though, the defense asked the court for the charges against Roland to be thrown out because, they claimed, it was all circumstantial evidence. But the judge refused the request about as quickly as it was put on the table. He said there was an avalanche, yes, he actually used that word, avalanche, of both circumstantial and direct evidence that a jury needed to consider. On July 27, 2021, the jury deliberated for only about an hour before they came back with a unanimous verdict. According to ABC News Columbia, Roland was found guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Josephson. He was also found guilty of possession of a weapon during a violent crime. 
Upon his sentencing, the judge asked Roland if he had anything to say before he handed down his sentence, and Roland, which to me sounded incredibly emotionless, dry, and insincere, told the judge, quote, Your Honor, I know I'm innocent, but I guess what I know and what I think really doesn't matter. I just wish the state would have done more in finding out who the actual person was instead of being satisfied with detaining me and proving my guilt. I feel like if they would have done further research in certain areas, end quote. Seriously, it, he ends right there. Then he just kind of trails off and mumbles, quote, that's all I got, end quote. <laughs> the judge, though, was not having any of it, and basically all but told Roland he was a terrible human and full of shit. <laughs> I'm going to give you a quote of what the judge told Roland in response, but fair warning, it's more like a speech instead of a simple quote, so it is a bit long. However, I think it is so important for you to hear exactly what the judge said, because yeah, he was not buying any of Roland's bullshit. So, Judge Clifton Newman told Roland, quote, The evidence in this case is so overwhelming. Law enforcement in this case did the best job of investigating a case that I have seen over the past 30 or 40 years. Every law enforcement officer that was available participated inherently in this case. And if there were a thousand roads, each road led to you. If there's a thousand trails, each trail led to you. All of the evidence... Every speck of the evidence, not simply beyond a reasonable doubt, but as high a standard as the law requires, all points to your guilt, and I am absolutely satisfied. I have dealt with the heartless, and you fall into that category. A person without any remorse whatsoever. A person who is totally emotionless. In the law, we call it a depraved heart, and it would be absolutely astonishing, amazing to me, for the truth to be that you have engaged in this activity all of a sudden, end quote. The judge went on to say that he thinks there must have been some sort of signs about Roland that required intervention. He said if the family would have paid attention to those signs instead of perhaps ignoring them, Samantha's life would have been spared. The judge also said that the odds of Roland being innocent and Roland's claim to innocence is basically ridiculous. He said someone would have had to steal Roland's car, steal his keys, kidnap Samantha, kill her with Roland's tool, then dump her in Roland's home territory and miraculously get the car back to Roland for him to have time to go to the ATM because Roland was on the camera trying to use her card. The judge said it's just not plausible and doesn't make sense. Finally, Judge Newman told Roland, quote, it's the most severe murder that has occurred that I have been a witness to as far as presiding in court or participating in as a lawyer. And for whomever asks me for leniency, yeah, that's not part of my DNA. Your whole 24 hours was recreated almost minute by minute, mile by mile, digit by digit. That's led you here and you've now been found guilty, end quote. The judge concluded by sentencing Roland to life in prison, and in South Carolina, that means he will not be eligible for parole. According to my research of the South Carolina laws, a life prison sentence automatically means until the person's death without the possibility of parole. So he will be spending the rest of his emotionless life behind bars, exactly where he belongs. As always, I want to end this episode in remembrance of Samantha, the victim, not the terrible person who so tragically and heartlessly took her life. 
So I'm going to leave you with some words from her mother, Marcy, who told Good Morning America, quote, We just want you to know that she is a fabulous young woman, kind, a best friend to everyone, really determined, hard worker, and a fun young woman, end quote. Okay, y'all. First of all, I just want to say thank you for bearing with me through this episode. I've been a little under the weather this week. um, And I started a new job, which I told you guys about on Instagram. And that's also why I changed my introduction up a little bit, if you'll notice. But yeah, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 15. Um, But if you'd like to see photos of Samantha and others associated with this story, I urge you to check out Campus Crime Chronicles on social media. You can find me at Campus Crime Pod on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. Also, you didn't think I was going to end this episode without asking you to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, did you? (laughs) I have a goal of 100 reviews by the end of the year, but I'm only at about 34 as of the recording of this episode. So, Honestly, I'd be happy with even 50. (laughs) So that's my new goal, 50 or more reviews by the end of 2021. So help me make this happen, (laughs) y'all. Okay, bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.